You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collected work by Rudolf Steiner, number 107, entitled Disease, Karma, and Healing, Spiritual Scientific Inquiries into the Nature of the Human Being. This is Lecture 6, given in Berlin on the 29th of October, 1909, excuse me, 1908. Today we will consider things you are already familiar with from a certain angle. All spiritual scientific studies, however, can only be fully illumined when we shed light on them from a range of different perspectives. In the anthroposophical stream here in our Central European regions, we need to discuss certain things, drawn from advanced esoteric research, which could therefore easily be misunderstood. At the same time, we would make no headway without taking the risk of talking about them in a quite unvarnished fashion. In retracing humanity's evolution through the different periods of civilization, in the post-Atlantean period back to Atlantis, and further back to still more ancient times, we find when we focus a spiritual gaze on the processes involved that the human being assumes ever-changing forms, In the last third of the Atlantean epoch, the etheric body was still outside the physical body, to some extent. The head of the etheric body was not yet connected with the powers of the physical body, which are the forces of the I, of self-awareness, capital I. If we observe the process underlying this, we find that further evolution involved the etheric head pushing its way into the physical head. If you look at a horse today, its etheric head extends well beyond the physical head. Compared with the physical head, it is a mighty form. I have also described to you the magnificent organization of an an elephant's etheric parts, which extend way beyond its physical body. In the same way, in the Atlantean period, the human etheric body was outside him and only gradually penetrated. This kind of penetration by a thinner element of a denser one at the same time involves what is physical becoming more compact. In those times, therefore, the physical human head had a quite different appearance from later on. If we were to look still further back to the latter days of the Lemurian epoch, a spiritual gaze would see very few signs of the physical head which existed then only in very soft, transparent matter. Only through gradual penetration by the etheric head did parts of the head become denser and separate from parts of the surrounding world. In later Atlantis, too, people were still hugely endowed with something that is only retained now in the pathological state of hydrocephalus, or water on the brain. We must also picture the bones of the upper human limbs in a softened state, completely soft. This sounds terrible to people today. Out of this watery substance, 
has hardened and formed what today encloses the human head. The image I sometimes use of a salt solution in a glass hardening and crystallizing out of water is not far removed from what happened. The way salt crystallizes out of a watery solution reflects these things fairly accurately. What occurred with the human head at this late stage happened to the rest of the human being much earlier. The outer limbs also gradually evolved from a soft mass. We can therefore ask where the human eye capital was at that time, the eye of today. It was not really in the human being, but still in the surrounding world. As the eye entered, we can say too, the upper human limbs hardened. The fact that the eye was still outside us then endowed it in another respect with a quality that later changed. By increasingly coming to dwell in the physical body, the eye was obliged to become an individual eye, whereas previously it was still a kind of group soul. Let me give you an image for this state of affairs. Imagine twelve people sitting in a circle somewhere. The stage of evolution we have reached today means that each of these has his eye within him. You can say, therefore, that there are twelve eyes sitting in the circle. But if we observed such a circle in Atlantean times, while the physical bodies would likewise be sitting around, the eye would still be outside in the ether body. In other words, each person would have his eye in front of him. But the eye had another quality then. It was not so centralized. It immediately activated its powers and connected with the eyes of the other people. Here, therefore, they form a ring that in turn sends its forces back toward the center. Thus we have an encircling etheric body here forming a single whole and enclosed within it the eyes. This image of a circle of physical bodies, then an etheric ring inside it, forming a unity that results from every individual eye enclosed within it, can give us a tangible idea of group souls. If we go still further back, we can retain this image, but must no longer conceive of such a regular circle of people. Instead, they may be scattered across the world. We can imagine someone in western France, another in eastern America, and so on. Thus not sitting together, but as far as the laws of the spiritual world are concerned, the eyes can be together, even if the people are scattered across the globe. These people are then interlaced. What is formed then by the confluence of their eyes is not such a geometrically beautiful ether body, but is still a unified entity. Thus at that time, a united group of people existed by virtue of their eyes forming a unity, and there were really four such group eyes. You have to picture these people in accordance with the laws of the spiritual world. The group souls of the four groups interwove with each other. They were not inwardly united, but entered into each other. These four group souls are called by the names of the four creatures of the Apocalypse, eagle, lion, bull, and man. But the human being was then at another level of evolution from today. 
These names derive from the organization of the group souls. How did they come to be called by these names? Today I would like to explain this to you from another angle. Let us transport ourselves back for a moment to gain a vivid sense of the early era of Lemuria. The souls incarnated today in human bodies had not yet descended as far as to enter physical bodies. As yet they had no inclination at all to unite with physical matter. The bodies, too, that would later become human bodies still very closely resembled animals. On earth we find grotesque physical entities that would appear more grotesque even than the most grotesque creatures on earth today. Everything, both human beings and their environment, was still in a state of soft, slippery matter, either watery or bubbling fire. Amongst these grotesque forms, of course, the antecedents of the human physical body were present. But the eye had not taken possession of them. The four group souls we described were already living as four group souls before the spirit entered the human physical organization, and thus four eyes were awaiting embodiment. Eyes inherently disposed toward very specific forms to be found below. Some had the predisposition to be drawn to one kind of organization already present in quite specific physical forms, and others to other such organizations. The shapes of the life forms below had to correspond in a certain way to the nature of each eye that was waiting there. Some forms were particularly suited to receiving the lion eye, others the bull eye, and so forth. This was at a very early stage of earth evolution. Now picture the group soul, which we have called the bull soul, drawing toward very particular forms below. These have a specific appearance. And likewise, the lion soul was drawn toward particular forms. Thus physical nature on earth reveals a fourfold image. One group evolved organs in particular whose functions correlated more with those of the heart. Their organization was one-sidedly oriented to the heart. They bore within them an especially aggressive, courageous, attacking element. Full of courage, they wished to dominate and overcome the others. So you can say they were already conquerors by nature, and this was implicit in their form. These were entities in whom the heart was made strong as the seat of the eye. In others the organs of digestion, nutrition and reproduction were most developed, while in a third group the organs of movement were emphasized. In a fourth group all these elements were distributed in equal measure, so that the element of aggression and courage was balanced by the calm element that enters through development of the digestive organs. The group in which the aggressive element was most developed, associated with the heart organization, were the human beings whose group souls belonged to the lions. The second group was that of the bull. The third group, with the element of movement that does not care to know much about earthly things, belonged to the group soul of the eagle. These were the ones who could raise themselves above the earth. And those in whom all these things were in equilibrium 
belonged to the group soul in quotes, man. In the physical realm, therefore, we discover a projection of these four group souls. In those times, the observer would have seen a quite remarkable sight. He would have found a sort of race which, with prophetic knowledge, he could have identified as physical beings reminiscent of lions, reflecting lion character, despite looking different from today's lions. These were lion-hearted entities, aggressive precursors of human beings. Then, again, there was a group of bull-like entities, all as considered from the physical plane. You can easily deduce the third and fourth race for yourselves. The third was already strongly visionary in nature. Whereas the first loved to battle and the second cultivated everything connected with the physical plane and its assimilation, the third class of humans you would have found to be very visionary. On the whole, they had something that looked deformed in relation to the other bodies. They would have reminded you of people who have great psychic gifts and believe in visions, but who, since they they do not pay much attention to the physical realm, have a somewhat desiccated quality, something atrophied by comparison with the burgeoning strength and energy of the other two groups. They would have reminded you of bird nature. These eagle men tended to want to hold back or retain their spirit. The others had something that was composed, as it were, of all aspects. Something else must be considered. If we go far enough back to find such conditions on earth, we must also keep in mind that everything that had happened during the earth's evolution occurred so that the spirit could regulate earthly affairs. All this was simply a detour to arrive at the modern human being. Anyone who could have examined these things still more closely would have found that these lion natures reminiscent of what we see today in a quite different way in the form of the lion body, developed a special power of attraction for the male forms of ether bodies. They felt themselves especially drawn toward these lion men, and thus these beings had an outward lion body, but an inner masculine ether body. Such a creature was a mighty ether being, masculine in character, and a small part of this ether body consolidated into the physical lion body. You can really say that the physical body was the comet nucleus, while the ether body formed the comet's tail as a real creator of the nucleus. The bull race, however, had a special power of attraction for the feminine ether body. Thus the body of the bull creature had the power to attract the feminine ether body and unite with it. And now imagine also that the effect of this ongoing and that the ether bodies continually penetrate and transform the physical. The relationship between the lion type and bull type person is particularly important in ancient times. The others are less relevant. The masculine ether bodies which crystallized a physical lion body out of themselves had the capacity to fertilize the physical lion body itself, and this reproduction of humanity was ensured by the lion-type race. This was a kind of non-sexual fertilization proceeding from the spiritual realm. 
the bull-type race was also able to do this. What had become physical worked back here on the feminine ether body. During the course of evolution, things started to change. Whereas the lion nature preserved this kind of reproduction and intensified it, since the fertilizing power descended from the spirit from above, the other process was increasingly suppressed. Bull humanity grew ever less fertile. In consequence, one type of humanity was sustained through fertilization, while the other half became less and less fertile. One type became the female sex and the other the male. What is today physically female, in fact, has a male ether body, while the man's ether body is feminine. The woman's physical body emerged from lion nature, while the physical bull body is the precursor of the male body. The spiritual nature in us has a common origin, is neutral, only entering the physical body after the sexes had already become differentiated. Only then was the spiritual element taken up, and only then did the head harden. Not until this point did the ether body of the head unite with the physical body. Entirely unconcerned as to whether it settled on the body of a man or a woman, both sexes are the same in this respect. Ignoring the general commonality over and above sexual differentiation, we can say that the woman has evolved something lion-like. We can certainly discover this concealed, courageous aspect in her. The woman can develop the courage of inwardness in war, for example, in nursing, in certain services to humanity. The male physical body has what we can really call bull nature. This is connected with the man's greater tendency to act out of physical endeavor. This is certainly apparent from an esoteric perspective, even though it sounds very odd. Thus you see how these group souls have acted together. They work in collaboration, the lion and the bull group souls. These divine entities act together, and today we can find within us the labors undertaken by the diverse divine group souls. The images I have briefly offered here can certainly take effect in tracing humanity back to ever earlier times, until we reach an era when reproduction was not yet possible, we must say that the external physical female body transformed into something lion-like, whereas the male body was bull-like. If we wish to understand these things properly, we must approach them only with reverent, serious respect. Students of human anatomy would find it easy to derive the anatomical anatomical divergences between man and woman from the different natures of lion and bull. As long as physical scientists study only external facts instead of penetrating into inner spiritual realities, their work will remain entirely unproductive. Now it will no longer strike you as so strange that a former race of humans once had lion-like bodies. These increasingly incorporated the nature of the eye so that lion nature was transformed evermore into the female body. Those which did not integrate anything of this spiritual element transformed in a different way, 
into the actual lions of today and what is related to them. On another occasion I will explain why these animals also have two sexes. Those which did not gain any of this spirituality evolved into today's lions, while those that did develop while those that did developed today's female body. Over time we can demonstrate a very great number of other related aspects. Anthroposophic study is not like mathematics. First we draw attention, for example, to the four group souls, initially only naming them. Then we choose a particular point of view and illumine the matter from without. And so we keep approaching things from different perspectives. We circle round the original premise and illumine it from the most diverse points of view. If you take this on board, you will never be able to say that anthroposophical findings are contradictory. The same applies even to the greatest things we consider here. The apparent contradictions are due to the different standpoints we adopt in our studies. I would like to think that you will take what one might call inner tolerance away with you. May we succeed in introducing this inner spirit of tolerance into our distinctive anthroposophic stream, the anthroposophic movement. Let us take this away with us as a content of our feeling and try to work in the wider world in a way that can allow this spirit of profound inmost mutual understanding to take root. Even if we are in different locations, our soul, our heart, can reach out to all that unites us to the great anthroposophical ideals, and then we can elaborate what a spiritual organism should be as something that grows and thrives. The life of our anthroposophic cause toward which we send our strength from the most diverse angles and perspectives. The end of Lecture 6